So they're just waiting for an excuse. And so sometimes they don't they don't have the heart to fire him after 30 years, so they wait for him to retire. And as soon as he sells his practice to someone else, they, they cross the street. Canadians are just too damn polite. They're too damn polite. <laughs> Money Mostly Canadian Podcast with your host, Freet Banerjee. Welcome back to Mostly Money. I'm your host, Preet Banerjee. And on the show today, I'll be speaking to John DeGuy. Am I pronouncing that right? Yep. Yeah. Uh, a portfolio manager with Industrial Alliance Securities. And we're already into the scotch. So all the rules are out the window at this point. Now, as usual, before I introduce John, thank you again to the listeners who've left star ratings on iTunes. A special thanks this week to, and forgive me if I'm not pronouncing this correctly, Milgra. Elricas, who thinks I should have been tougher on uh, Salman Ahmed from uh, Steady Hand, but does appreciate the burger advice that we doled out nonetheless. Dr. Pavel in friend, who is an accounting student at U of T apparently, and the Enforcer 69, who also liked the discussion about burgers with Salman. And I think I'm sensing a trend here. So one of my first questions for John is going to be his burger recommendations in the city of Toronto. Now, if you haven't done so yet, I really do appreciate you taking five seconds to leave a rating on iTunes. And if you want to take the additional time to write in a comment on top of that, I do read them all. Now, on to today's guest. So I introduced John as a portfolio manager with Industrial Alliance Securities, but John has also been a guest on this podcast before, and really, because I didn't do any prep for this podcast interview whatsoever, I don't have a bio sitting in front of me, but that's fine, because as you know, we actually go through the guest's history as the first part of every single interview that we do on Mostly Money. So with that being said, John, why don't you tell us about yourself? Why don't you give us our your <laughs> yeah, bio? I was born a poor black child, like they say in the jerk. I, I, um, I did my uh, undergrad in political studies and graduate work in public administration. So I have a bit of a public policy sort of background, which mm-hmm. is a bit odd that I would be working in, in finance with a, with a public sector background. But I, I began working as a financial advisor in September of 93. So I'm going on 24 years and with a small uh, financial planning firm here, all in Toronto. Uh, and uh, one of the trends that you will also hear from the course of our discussion today is that there's a lot of consolidation going on in the industry. So I've actually, I'm on my sixth business card, but I've only switched <laughs> firms once. Right. So firms keep on being bought. So I was, I was, I started at a firm called Equion and then Equion became Asante and I switched to a firm called Bergenvest in 2005, which became Bergenvest Bic, which was bought by Industrial Alliance about a year and a half ago. So I'm an Industrial Alliance now. <laughs> I think that's my last move because IA is pretty big. Right. And, uh, and I, um, so I've been, I've been active in the financial planning community. I've been active as an advisor and, and, a, and a writer. And I made the move to become a portfolio manager, I guess, about six years ago. So, um, it was the sort of thing where I think for the first maybe three years, I was an associate portfolio manager. You need to have some experience before you can become a full PM. And I've been a full PM for about three years. I think that's a good background. Okay. Yeah, that's good. And let's talk about how we met. Okay. Because this is actually the story that this, I wrote for the forward for your for book. For the forward of the book. So uh, for the listeners, if you don't know, Preet and I go back a long way. 
Preet and I are both sort of like uh, gadflies to the industry, wanting it to to be better. And uh, I had been writing for a magazine called Advisors Edge for a number of years when Preet entered the industry. And uh, lo and behold, uh, one day uh, there was an article that I read in, in Advisors Edge that Preet had written, and I, I really enjoyed it. And as fate would have it, about a month and a half later, there was a Christmas party, and I was at the party of, for all the different people who had written for Advisors Edge, and Preet was there. So I, I sought him out and said, uh, you know, I really like your article. We should maybe have lunch. And when, when we had our lunch, I said, so, you know, aren't a lot of people like us around, so we really have to stick together. <laughs> and uh, and we've stuck together ever since. Yes, and I remember when I was just starting in the industry, I'd read articles about um, various different topics uh, that you had penned. And I thought, well, this guy sounds a little bit different than yeah. the, the stories that I'm hearing from people around me. And I like the transparency. I like that you're sort of really walking the talk. And uh, and so, yes, yeah, so we've, we've sort of kept in each other's ear for a long time. And... Um, I don't know about you, but I got a lot of flack when, uh, well, I still do. You think? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got a lot of flack when I would, you know, put out various different opinions about, yeah. you know, we should be more transparent yeah. and, and why do people care so much about hiding these costs? Why not be forthright and upright and all that yeah. stuff? I want to know some of the stories because you've been doing that for a for long, long time for, for, yeah, before I even you. got into That's the right. industry. Yeah, so. I've, I've probably been writing about that sort of thing about transparency, professionalism. The bias caused by embedded compensation since maybe just after the turn of the millennium. When I first started writing my book, it was January of 01. And the first edition of my book came out in the autumn of 03. And it was around that time that I started writing articles, uh, more, more or less in the industry press, which is to say just to other financial advisors. And I would say that for the first five or six or seven years, um, four out of five people who would send me an email or write a letter to the editor about something I had written were were caustic and, and critical uh, and I was an extremely unpopular person within the industry I, I, I'm, I'm less unpopular now but I don't want to say that I'm popular <laughs> it's all it's all a matter of degree but I would say that maybe around 2009 or so 2008 2009 maybe with the financial crisis and maybe because of it but I don't want to say there's causation but there's a correlation that around around that same time the worm turned and at that point um the the correspondence that I got was dis- decidedly positive. So I've been getting most people. I mean, obviously, most people don't bother to write one way or the other when someone writes an article uh, or an op-ed piece or whatever. But for the past, I'm going to say seven or eight years, I've been getting more or nine years, I've been getting more positive feedback than negative. And I think what it is is sort of like it's a fulcrum, where if if the majority of people are critical. Like any industry, there's a certain amount of peer pressure and wanting to fit in. And so the people that were sort of in alignment with what you and I were saying would would stand on the sidelines because they're so conspicuously in the minority. But as more and more people came forward, it further emboldened other people that were always aligned with us but that didn't have the courage to come forward. And now I think the bad guys are on the run. Now it's the people that are critical who used to be brash and in your face about, you know, you, you know you're an idiot. Now they're the ones who can't speak out because the good guys will say that they're an idiot. Now, when you started talking about uh, all the issues that you've raised and trying to raise the standards for the industry and doing it for a long period of time, like I felt when I entered the industry and I started to voice my opinion, I thought, man, what is it going to take for the industry to change from the point that we're at now? But you have been doing it for a lot longer. Why did you stay 
as an advisor? Like, how did you live with that milieu? Yeah, it's funny because I um, I had, uh, when I started doing the book originally at the turn of the millennium, I had colleagues at my former firm uh, at Asante who would say that, John, what you really ought to be doing is you should be a consumer advocate. But I realized that um, if you want to have a window to the industry and how things work and sort of see what the sordid underbelly looks like, you've got to be in it. You can't just sort of, one of the criticisms that people would have of, say, journalists, my friends like John Chevro and Rob Carrick, who you know as well, people would, it's too easy for advisors to say, well, that guy has no credibility because he has never actually had to sit, sit across from a, a retail client. Well, that's just it. I, I do sit across from retail clients. And as soon as I give that up, I surrender that, that sort of moral high ground of saying, yeah, I've been in your shoes. I've, you know, I've walked a mile. I know what it's like. So I felt it behooved me to stay. First off, I love my job. So, you know, I, I really had no desire to leave anyway, but I thought I was really in a, a privileged position to be able to get a chance to, to sort of say what goes on while living it. Most people either live it and don't say anything or they say something, but they don't have to live it. I, that, that combination was rare and I'm thankful for it. And of course, I have to ask, you know, being a vocal person working for a large firm, yep. that's not an easy thing. Nope. I mean, how much pushback did you get from the higher ups? Because I'll tell you a story I have. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, and of course, I have compliance things that I can't say too much. But I, I'll tell you that uh, the firm that I used to be at um, was was much more uh, of a pushback sort of firm than, than the firms that I've been with uh, in the past 12 or 13 years. Uh, one of the problems that you have with that firm, and it's not necessarily from management, it's from your peers. It's sort of, it's the dirty looks in the washroom, it's the, the nasty glares of the coffee, uh, machine where, where you're, you're obviously not one of the tribe. Right. And, and the, when, when an industry sort of closes ranks and decides that they're going to sort of ostracize people who don't toe the line, even if the line is conspicuously contrary to ordinary investors, doesn't matter. They, there's tribalism and, and sort of like, you know, I, I was the one who would have been the first one and voted off the island if that would have ever been a, <laughs> been a you know, financial financial survivor. So so let's let's talk about all the things that you sort of stand for and that you've been pushing for sure. over over the years. So so what is it you think that has been the problem with the industry over time since you started your career and, sure. and talk about the evolution. Sure. So, the, yeah, you asked for the problem. There are many problems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but let me say that uh, I, I think first and foremost has been that the industry is conflicted, especially the mutual fund industry. So you, you have, viewers would, uh, listeners would probably know that there are three main forms of licensure. If you give financial advice in Canada, you can have a, a license to sell insurance, which includes segregated funds. You can have a license to sell mutual funds and you can have a license to sell securities. And as of a number of years ago, you can have multiple licenses. So you can sell, for instance, securities and insurance. Um, but the, the industry segments itself fairly cleanly in that um, the people who have a full securities license, including portfolio managers like myself, tend to have, I would say, the highest standard and the highest degree of professionalism. The other two groups, the insurance people and the mutual fund people, not as much, and they have more of a culture which is, um, because they have a more limited product shelf, they have a culture which is based on product placement. And and as the saying goes, if you go with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So these are people who, even if they do get a chance to widen their product shelf, oftentimes won't because they're they're more inclined to do what they've what they've always known. So as an example, mutual fund people can now sell exchange traded funds if they if their firm will actually put the infrastructure in place, which most firms surprisingly don't. But 
there are problems with mutual funds because the very large majority of them um, involve an embedded commission. And so if you if you buy them uh, from a, from an advisor, you're probably going to be left with either a, a so-called load, which would take you typically about seven years to earn out. Or even if there's not a load, um, there's going to be about a, typically a 1% trailing commission that the advisor gets every year that is being paid. And up until the statements that went out over the new year, most clients were unaware of the advisor being paid. And it's one of those things where the, it's like the industry was kind of weird. For, for many, many years, uh, advisors would pretend that the advice was free mm-hmm. and clients would actually say, oh, okay. It's like like, like <laughs> advisors are not Mother Teresa. They don't do this out of the goodness of their hearts. They got a family to feed. They got a mortgage to pay. They're getting paid. So the question is just because you're not getting a bill, how are you paying for this? And a lot of consumers have this uh, silly, willful ignorance of, well, ask me no questions. I'll tell you no lies. If, you know, if I don't get a bill, that's, that's good by me. And I mean, they're, they're, they're being, they're paying more than they need to. And a lot of them aren't even aware. So that's probably the biggest problem in the industry. There are problems with regard to proficiency. There are sort of other misaligned incentives, such as quotas and that sort of thing that go on. Some of those problems are more prevalent in the banks. Some, some problems are more in the MFDA channel, the mutual fund channel. Um, so there are a number, but I think the biggest one, if I could only identify one would, would be the, the bias that hurts consumers that is part and parcel with embedded compensation. Okay, so let's break this down a little bit for uh, listeners who may not be as up to speed yeah. uh, as you and I and other industry participants. Yeah. Let's talk about when you mentioned the word load. What does the word load mean? Sure. Break that down for the layperson. Sure. So for a layperson, uh, if you look at your statements, one thing that you should look at if you've got a mutual fund is you should see if there's uh, the letters DSC beside the name of your fund. If there is a DSC beside the fund name, that means deferred sales charge and fund that have a deferred sales charge have a load associated with them. And that's basically because, say, if it's a stock fund, it'll probably pay the advisor typically a 5% commission the week that he or she sold you the fund and an additional one half of 1% annually for as long as you continue to own that fund. So if you put $10,000 into a stock mutual fund, the advisor will make $500 the next week and make an additional $50 a year. That's $5,050 in year one and fifty years, $50 every year thereafter. That's money that the mutual fund company pays to the advisor, even though you put $10,000 in your account and there's $10,000 in your account. So where did that $550 come from? Well, it comes from the ongoing charges that are being associated with the fund that you own. And if you sell it uh, prematurely, which is to say in seven years or less, you're going to have to pay that cost, that commission that went to your advisor for, via your your um, by your product manufacturer back to the product manufacturer. Uh, manufacturer ABC is not going to be out five hundred dollars if you buy a mutual fund for ten thousand dollars one month and sell it the next. They're going to want their money back because they your advisor has been paid and that money is not going to be recouped. So the only way that the fund company gets their money back is if by, by charging you. So that, that charge is typically five and a half percent in the first year and then five and four and a half and four and three, two, one. And it doesn't go down to zero typically until the end of year seven. So basically if you were to buy a mutual fund that had this DSC option, this deferred sales charge option, um, if you put in $10,000, $10,000 will show up in your account yet 
the advisor and their firm would split a commission, which is typically 5% on a deferred sales charge Mm -hmm. fund. And if you were to sell within the first seven years, there would be a penalty that you would have to pay that would come out of your holdings that would effectively reimburse the commission that was paid up front. And essentially what's happening is the way to think of it is the mutual fund company that, that you own is amortizing the payment made to the advisor that sold you the fund in week one over the next seven years. Right. And, and, the, and the longer, the closer you are to the, the amortization period, the less you have to pay. So it only costs you a couple percent if you sell in year five or six, but uh, it'll, it'll cost you pretty much the full 5% and sometimes five and a half in year one. Right. And this whole structure, this is basically the poster child for embedded compensation. So what that would mean is that the compensation is embedded in the product itself. And you don't get a bill. And that's, that's the whole problem is that a lot of people, there's no, people can't get up in arms about something that they never see or don't understand. And so one of the things that the people who are proponents of embedded compensation say is, well, it ain't broke, don't fix it. Because if there's a problem or well, where are all the complaints well the, the complaints aren't there because a lot of consumers literally have no idea how and how much they're paying so you can't get upset about something that you don't understand okay so here's a question then so um this is getting inside baseball a little bit but we've talked about this on the podcast before and that is the crm2 phase three uh regulatory uh, requirement that firms now have to provide you with an annual document, two, two new annual documents, and one of which details the costs of distribution uh, mm-hmm. or costs of um, uh, not all of the costs that you would pay for your products, but some of the costs. The cost of the advice. The cost of the advice. And a lot of people said, well, this has the potential to be a watershed moment where people will say, oh, now I'm going to see how much I'm being paid. But I haven't seen Nothing. a lot of people up in arms. It's spinning on. Yeah. So that, that's it's actually a second phase of the CRM. And, and, and it only, think of if you go to a garage and if you want to get your muffler replaced and it's going to cost you, say, $89 for the muffler and $120 for the one hour of labor to, to replace the What garage are you going to that it's know. that cheap? Okay, well, whatever it is. I'm just using simple numbers. <laughs> I'm a car guy. So. Okay. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So um, so maybe it's $189 for the, uh, for the muffler and $320 for the labor. I don't know. But whatever it is, before the work is done, the garage will say, um, Mr. Brandigy, here's the price of the, the muffler. Here's the estimated cost of the labor and the time it's going to take. Please initial here, and we'll have the car ready for you to pick up in an hour. Well, um, what, what CRM2 is doing is it's saying, this is how much it's going to cost for the labor to install the muffler. Not a word about the cost of the muffler itself, which mm-hmm. is the cost of the underlying mutual funds. And so the consumer, the client, the investor is paying categorically for both the parts and the labor, both the mutual fund investment and the advice that's associated with that investment. But what CRM2 statements are talking about They're only disclosing the cost of the advice, not the cost of the underlying product. So do you think that this was some kind of willful compromise? Yeah. It was positioned as being a a, 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 a major watershed. In fact, it's just a signpost along the way, but it's meh. There's really nothing... Very little has changed. In fact, one of the things that I would have to acknowledge, and I sort of fell into the trap myself, uh, when I wrote the book initially, I used to use the the phrase stand-up for scientific testing and necessary disclosure underpin professionalism. The D was for disclosure, and I don't think disclosure works. So in the most recent edition of my book, I'm talking about D standing for disintermediation. You know, we only 
get to real professionalism if we can disintermediate and separate the cost of the advice from the cost of the product so that there's no question as to what each of them costs so that consumers can make an informed decision. And and so you mentioned your book, and the book is called The Professional Financial Advisor, and it's edition four, four yeah. that is the most recent edition. Yeah. What's evolved since edition one? When did you first write edition one, and what's changed over the years? Yeah, so it's funny because I started writing edition one in January of 01 at the turn of the millennium, and it was sort of like, you know, this is my new millennium revolution. The world is going to change, and it was sort of all, I think, part of the zeitgeist of everyone talking about the you know the new millennium so i said okay well i had some friends at my previous firm that were writing books and i said if they can do it so can i and it was mostly though cathartic for me so i had as, as you were you and i were discussing earlier a lot of people that would give me grief at the water cooler because i was questioning the way things were being done and i was tired of all the abbots because people would give me all these non-sequitur reasons for why the status quo was acceptable and, mm-hmm. it, and it wasn't so i figured that it Instead of allowing people to, to use another red herring to sort of divert the attention and change the subject, I would tell the entire story from start to finish so that people would have to listen. And I think the problem was it, it was maybe too cumbersome. But it started off as a cathartic way of getting my thoughts in order to sort of categorize all that was wrong. In terms of what has changed in the interim, first off, I started writing that book in 01. It didn't come out till 03. And while I was writing it, I was convinced there would be another half dozen books in the marketplace before mine came out because I had a day job. And right. I wasn't. And uh, in fact, um, there have been very few books talk, talking about how the financial services industry has evolved into a profession. I think mine is still really the only one that does it. Um, my friend Sandra Foster had a, had a book that came out uh, called uh, Who's Minding Your Money? Uh, in the early, I, I see a copy of uh, You Can't Take It With You there on your shelf. That's <laughs> yeah. part of what I was thinking of. Yeah. And and uh, so there were a few books that would talk about understanding how things work. And uh, But this was maybe the first book that I was, one that I was writing that was intended as a bridge to help consumers understand what advisors are doing, but also to sort of urge advisors to be more consumer-centric. And very little has actually changed. I was actually convinced that so much would change possibly even before the first edition came out, and it came out in 03. One of the things that I have learned as I've been more involved with regulators and governments and industry lobby groups and, and whatever is that in Canada, things move very, very slowly. And in fact, other parts <laughs> of the world too, but I think Canada particularly. And and I'm like a lot of people are, it's hard not to be a little bit disheartened at the very slow pace of change. But the good news is, there is more transparency. We've gone through what Ontario had uh, called the, the fair dealing model at the uh, around 2005 or so. And then we had CRM1 where you had to disclose uh, conflicts and real and perceived and suitability and what, but they're more at the macro level, at the firm level. And now CRM2 basically went live on January 1st where you're talking about performance reporting and how much you're paying for the advice to the firm. Uh, we still have a way to go. And I, I think there was actually, but I do think there's some momentum. So although pace, the pace of change remains slow, I would say that it's actually going from slow to moderate. It's, it's never been fast. It never will be fast. No, but, I don't think But it I think it's, it's be, at no. least, at least there's some momentum that things are actually getting done and you can sort of kind of see the line moving as opposed to feeling there's no progress being made at all. As a financial advisor, what is your take on this robo-advisor movement? So you hear about it all the yeah. time in the headlines. Yeah. What is your take so, on robo-advisor? So I, first off, I don't think they're a big threat, and they're, they're a small portion of the marketplace that rounds to zero the number of assets in robo-advisors in mm-hmm. Canada, and I think even in the U.S. still. 
but I generally like them. So I, I think they're they're being made out to be more than uh, I guess that with a lot of transformative technologies, there's sort of nothing, 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 and then suddenly, boom, where did that come from? So I, I think at some point, robo advisors might sneak up on us and become much more prevalent, but that might be eight or 10 years down the road. My sense is that artificial intelligence is getting better all the time. And I think that they're a great option for, I'm going to say small investors, and I'll define that as anybody with say less than $100,000 to invest, um, because they use the cheaper products and they the advice that they give is cheaper, more rudimentary, but most people who have a small amount of money to invest have a plain vanilla, simple problem to be solved. You know, I've got this pool of capital. How do I invest it? They're not doing estate planning in a really complex way. They're not setting up trusts. They're not doing all these other whiz-bang things. And so for an ordinary person who's maybe listening to this podcast who just doesn't have a lot of financial assets but just wants things to be looked after and wants to get a sense that I can't, you know, they can't do it themselves, but they don't want to pay someone to, to do it. I think uh, robo-advisors are going to be a very good thing. One of the things I think that's interesting is that I think one of the things that I say that I, actually, the one thing that I could not put into my book, so I'll say it here, was that um, I'm of the opinion that there's about, well, that there are way too many advisors in the in the business. There was right. a, a paper that came out. The securities administrators put out a paper about what to do about embedded compensation at the beginning of the year, and reports were um, submissions were due uh, on Friday, the the ninth of June. And uh, in it, in the guts of the paper, they said that the UK had about um, only one quarter as many advisors per capita as Canada has. Canada's got four advisors that for every one in the UK, based on twi- you know twice as many po- advisors with half the population, basically, mm-hmm. and. Um, so it's it's my considered opinion that if you, it was like that that the advisor business could be like a first year killer course at university where the prof says look to your left look to your right before we're done one of the three of you will be gone. I literally believe that we could easily get rid of one third of all advisors in Canada and not make a ripple in terms of access to advice. There, there's just that many advisors, and and furthermore we have robo advisors to pick up slack as well, so they actually help small individual investors. So I think robo-advisors are a great choice and for for people who just want to keep it simple. And obviously, you need to find a human advisor as soon as things are too complex for the robo. I'm not going to define what that is. I'll leave that up to you. Um, but one of the things that I've found is that um, for the people who say that there aren't enough advisors, give your head a shake. I, I, I only know two or three advisors in the entire country that are not taking on new clients. Every advisor is <laughs> taking new clients. And the two or three that are not taking on new clients have a minimum of like half a million dollars and small investors weren't going to get to work with that advisor anyway. So in terms of you know the the number of advisors and, and the absolute utility, I, absolutely. I, I would say almost every advisor could increase their, their the number of clients in their practice by 50 or 60%. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Dan Hallett was a recent guest on the podcast, and and one of the things we talked about was the overall impact that uh, advisors, robo-advisors have had so far. And if you add up all the assets under administration, uh, both here uh, in Canada and in the U.S., so in each of those markets, it's still less than some of the top individual broker teams, uh, again, in here in Canada or the U.S. So the overall impact that they've had so far has been somewhat limited if you were to measure it only by assets managed. But are they having an impact on costs overall? Like, are people worried because of this rising threat and the potential yeah. that robo-advice has? 
Uh, downtown Josh Brown. Josh Brown over at uh, Reholds uh, Asset Management in New York wrote a really great piece uh, in the paper a day or two ago talking about the Vanguard effect and mm-hmm. how uh, as, uh, as low-cost providers come into the marketplace, it forces everyone to sharpen their pencil and lower their, their cost, their MER, their management expense ratio. And that's true whether it's a mutual fund or an exchange-traded fund. And uh, cost is a it's, it's pretty clear the people over at Morningstar, Christopher Davis at Morningstar, is very adamant, and the researchers in Chicago are adamant that far and away the most important determinant of uh, long-term performance is, is cost, and it correlates negatively, which is to say the lowest-cost products are the ones that perform the best. So as that idea hits the public consciousness, suddenly everyone's got to lower their cost, otherwise they're going to lose business uh, to the low-cost providers. So a lot of firms are just not making as much money as they used to, not because they're not managing as much, but their margins are being compressed. Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, that's great for investors. It's about bloody time investors actually got a good deal. And, and I guess the point that I would make is that the, the, the advisors that can actually pass those cost savings on to uh, the, the, the clients are the ones who charge separately for the advice because wherever it's embedded, um, usually it's the high cost products that are also embedded. And so there's no real incentive to lower the, the cost for the client if you're using an embedded product most of the time. One of the things that people are suggesting is on the horizon is that there is a hybrid model that will ultimately develop before a wholesale shift into a robo advice for mm-hmm. um, you know the masses, mm-hmm. and that is financial advisors using some kind of white labeled version of the different robo advisors out there. Is that something that you see your own practice evolving into? Like, how do you run your so, practice? So I, I don't see it happening now, but it could happen down the road. It's ironic because my main administrative assistant is in her mid-60s, and I have an associate who's my age in the mid-50s. And I don't anticipate um, so much of what an admin person does is the human touch of, well, do you want to get your RIF payments quarterly or annually? And you know, you know, we can set the withholding tax at ten percent or twenty percent. What do you want to do? And a lot of those questions are not are not. I mean, they're not that technical, but you really need a human element to talk to people to say, so okay, think about your budgeting and your cash flow, and how is this going to work? And so I, I don't personally see that happening. That, that that does not mean that I would be opposed to it. So this is not a philosophical uh, opposition. I'm just saying that I don't see a fit. With the current state of uh, artificial intelligence today, that might change in five or six years. I'm not philosophically opposed, but right now I don't see it happening. Okay, so let me play devil's advocate now. So there's been a bit of a shift um, from you know commission-based compensation models to fee-based. So a lot mm-hmm. of the big players in the financial services have said to their sales force, listen, we want you to shift over into a fee-based type type of uh, relationship with your clients. Uh, and some of the reasons they state is, listen, it's it's more stable, reliable income. Mm-hmm. And they have other reasons for it as well. But if you take a look at it, you know, when it comes to a, a relationship, if you're doing a financial planning, there's a lot of work that's done upfront, right? And then after that, once you've trained the client, you've established a good relationship, the amount of work that's done you know, it's front loaded and it kind of tapers off. And maybe you have some kind of big life moment where mm-hmm. something changes and maybe you have to retweak the plan. Mm-hmm. And as you approach retirement, there may be some more focus on the planning aspects and, and hold hand holding, etc. But for the most part, it's kind of a front end loaded relationship. But with a fee based model, 
it basically becomes a back-end loaded payout to the advisor because as their assets grow, they're making more and more money, even though they did more of the work up front. So does that is that a disconnect that will eventually get disrupted as well? Possibly. I think, let's not kid ourselves, there's disruption going on in, in all walks of life. And it would be, you'd be whistling past the graveyard if you didn't think it would happen in our industry too. So I think it, that's one of the disconnects that could happen. What I would say though is that Ironically, if you want to have an advisor that's professional, that's in it for the long term, that's actually a connect, not a disconnect. Because I think if you can, one of the ways of aligning interest is saying, you know, the advisor says, look, if your account goes up, I make more money. If your account goes down, I make less. So we're, we're sort of on, on, in the same boat here. And uh, the more you can get the account to go up for a, a long time, uh, one way of one way of saying what you just said, only with a different set of perspective, is that you're basically working at a discount up front. And then maybe taking a little bit more in future years. And so to some extent, I think consumers could be uh, heartened by the idea of their advisor doing some some work up front where they would be paid less than someone who did a commission sort of job up front because the commission person would make almost all the money up front and then wouldn't have a lot of incentive along the way. Whereas if the other person, assume, all else being equal, assuming the same amount of work was done up front, mm-hmm. would be getting paid less uh, but would have more of an incentive to to stay in touch and and to make sure that the relationship is a solid one. So I I could I could spin it the other way too. Right. Okay. Um, and so there's a a third model, uh, which is the fee for service model, yep. where you pay by the hour or you pay a flat project fee. Uh, what are your thoughts on that model and where you focus? Maybe say you know money coaching becomes a is becoming a much bigger. Yep. Uh, sort of form of service for financial advice. And a lot of them will say, you know, come to me for the financial planning. And when it comes to the portfolio execution, pay rock bottom costs and use some kind of automated service or uh, someone who will guide you to set it up yourself, etc. So what are the pros and cons of that model in your mind? The I, I think it's the most cost-effective model, and I think it's one that makes a great deal of sense. I don't think it will ever have a big market share, but I think it makes a lot of uh, sort of logical sense. Uh, I, I, a lot of people like to have the, the, the strategy and the implementation done simultaneously together at the same spot. So I think that might be one problem is that no matter how much you like the strategy and no matter how willing you are to disconnect, a lot of people don't like walking out of one office with the strategy and then going to a different office to implement it. The other thing that I would say is that, and this is funny because I was just in Ottawa last week. And as I said, I'm a policy wonk. I'm a, I'm a political guy. And, um, one of the things that your listeners might not know is that investment counseling is tax deductible under the Income Tax Act, but financial planning is not. So if you come to an advisor who gives you the strategy and implements it, because the implementation is is deductible in terms of as long as it's a fee and not a commission, it's fees are deductible, commissions are not, then that's great. But if you go to a fee for service planner to have a to spend whatever a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars on a plan, that's not deductible. And then you can go across the street to a robo to implement it to the extent that there are fees there. Those fees are they're modest, but they're deductible. Um, it's ironic because if you went to one place, they would all be deductible. But if you disaggregate it the way you just said, mm-hmm. uh, the cost is lower, but but the deductibility is also lessened. So and, it's, it's ironic. And let's talk about fees versus commissions because especially when it comes to trailing commission. I see a lot of people who, quite frankly, I think should know better, refer to trailing commissions as trailer fees. But there's a big difference. So do you want to explain that? Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
You hear a lot about supply chains these days, because if the past couple years have taught us anything, it's that an efficient, well-managed supply chain is absolutely critical to keeping businesses successful and consumers happy. I'm Will Haywood, and I host a podcast called All Business, No Boundaries, where we talk about supply chains, how they work, what happens when they don't, and the innovations that are redefining what's possible in the world of logistics. Join me for insightful interviews with thought leaders and industry experts. We discuss how optimizing supply chains can break down the barriers that are holding businesses back. That's All Business, No Boundaries by DHL Supply Chain. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's one of my all, all-time biggest bugaboos as I've been talking about that forever. So you, you can't suck and blow at the same time. Trailers are either commissions or other fees, but they cannot be both simultaneously. And a lot of people use the terminology interchangeably. So mm-hmm. the first thing that I would do is to any, for anyone is to go to a dictionary and look up the two words. And, and the basic definitions are a fee is a, is an amount that is charged for a service rendered and a commission is a payment made for a product placed. So think of it this way. Uh, discount brokerages, which make you sign a waiver saying we will not give you any advice we simply implement and execute buying and selling they collect trailers so trailers uh, have to be commissions because if they were a fee there would be advice there's no advice ergo it has to be a commission so it's funny how the industry and, and this is a lot of this is just sort of semantics in to to the people who like to brush it off but i think it's a lot more insidious than that the industry wants to be thought of, the sales element of the industry in particular, wants to be thought of as a profession. But the problem is professions charge fees, <laughs> sales representatives earn commissions. Right. So if we talk about earning, getting paid the way professionals get paid, maybe we can convince people that we're, you know, professionals. But the reality is, as a matter of fact, as using the logic I just explained, trailers are commissions. And so we have the situation where People, they do know better, but they but they spin it because a lot of advisors know that trailers are, in fact, commissions, but they also are pretty sure that their typical clients wouldn't really think about the difference, and so they call them fees because it just plain sounds better. Right, and, and this is kind of a distinction that I think is important, and I've always sort of thought of it this way. A commission originates from the product, yep. and there needs to be a product involved for there to be a commission generated. So it originates from the product. But a fee never originates from a product. It is product agnostic. It is billed directly to the client it's, uh, themselves. And I think that is a good distinction to make. I think it, it, it serves a purpose and helps people sort of delineate uh, the difference between advice and product sales, which is commissioned. But when it comes to other distinctions, so one thing that's been in the news lately is advisor and how it's spelt with an E <laughs> versus an O. And for me, this is kind of a, I don't know how to to, to say this, but I don't really think this is a, a hill to die on, the no. E versus the O distinction, not. but it's gotten a lot of play. It, it has. And, and essentially people are saying if it's not financial advisor spelled S-E-R, then you know it's a commission salesperson. But most people, in the industry who've been uh, shown that uh, that argument before, They're like, what the hell are you talking about? Most people are not aware of this outside of the industry or inside of the industry. And by that extent, I don't think they really think about 
about it consciously saying, oh, listen, make sure we tell our sales force they have to use an O because that way, uh, you know, we can be commissioned. I don't think anyone like that actually, I don't think anyone thinks like that in the industry. We agree. It's not a hill to die on. For the record, I spell it with an O. So if you're looking for the book in the bookstores, (laughs) it's Professional Financial Advisor with an O. Uh, But the important thing that I would say is for all you people who say it makes a difference, please show me one shred of evidence where there's a regulator who made a determination about the, the, the obligations of the advisor slash advisor based on whether it was spelled with an E or an O. I just, there's just no precedent anywhere that it makes a lick of difference. So go home. There's nothing to see here. Yeah. As far as I know, I mean, there is in the, uh, I think National Instrument 31103 refers to uh, the few times it refers to an advisor with an E is if you're a portfolio manager and held to a, a, a higher standard, standard fiduciary yeah. standard. And certainly in the U.S. Securities Act um, and the, the different legislation down there, they I think there's more of a distinction that is made down there. And I think a lot of people have sort of said, well, if it's down there, it's the same up here necessarily. It's not really. And in fact, I believe the Canadian securities administrators have a series of brochures where they refer to uh, financial advisors with an E who are able to sell with commissions. And they talk about them in the same way that, you know, these proponents of this there being a big deal between the distinction. I, I think just, we should move on. This is just pointless. It's, yeah. just, it's just not important at all. I could, uh, I, there are just dozens of things that are more important than this. It's, it's But it, I think it goes to show you, though, how certain well-intended people in the yeah. industry will will make a big deal out of things that, that they think are important that I think uh, any reasonable person, not to say that they're unreasonable, but that most reasonable people would say, look, this is just... It's not important, and there's no evidence that that this is even remotely material. Let's just move on. Okay, so we definitely agree on this. The financial advisor spelling E versus O is... I don't care. I spell it with an O, but but if somebody spells it with an E, then whatever floats your boat. I I think no differently. We've got bigger problems to to tackle, right? And and so uh, there's a couple of things going on right now. Um, So certainly Embedded Commission, um, they've been asking for people to submit their uh, opinions on how they think Embedded Commissions and a ban on Embedded Commissions would affect the industry. So I'm going to take a leap here and and assume that you think that yeah you should be all for it and yeah. uh, and move forward. So yeah. so what what is your position to the people who say well no it's it's a bad thing it's going to lead to disruption in the industry and people not getting uh, advice and that there's this advice gap that won't yeah. be filled. What is your response to people who say that an embedded commission would be bad? So a ban on the, the first thing that I would say is suck it up, buttercup. This is just <laughs> not a, uh, this is the sort of thing. There's disruption everywhere in the world. Like, you know, people, people in the taxi industry don't like Uber. People in the hotel industry don't like Airbnb. Disruption is going to come and you can't legislate it not coming. It's going to come anyway. So uh, that would be the first point. Uh, we've already talked a little bit about um, this complete silliness about um there are basically three issues here with regard to embedded compensation there's bias there's there's access and there's choice so far and away the biggest problem is advisor bias and that is the one where the evidence is overwhelming two uh, two reports came out in 2015 commissioned by the Canadian securities administrators one by a consulting firm called Brondersbury and one from a professor at Schulich at York uh, a guy by the name of uh, Cumming Douglas Cumming Doug Cumming yeah and and they both uh, made it very very clear that embedded 
embedded compensation clearly skews the advice in favor of the advisor and away from the the interests of the client. So that's the big nut, and and that's the one that uh, the people who want to retain embedded compensation don't want to talk about. But that's the biggest problem. They instead uh, try to shift the the, uh, the the battle to what they think is their their high ground, their strength, which is uh, access and and choice. So. We've already talked about this. We have four times as many advisors in Canada than we need. To my mind, there's such a thing as addition by subtraction. If we can get rid of, of, let's say, a third, but maybe it's a quarter. I don't care what the number is, but a significant minority, a large minority of advisors, not half, but a large chunk. And But as long as we could be sure that we were getting rid of the right advisors, which is to say the poor ones, the ones that don't make decisions and make recommendations in the interest of their clients. So the ones that are only managing, you know, four or five million dollars, and there are lots of them that are that small. Like in total, not in per total, client. Not, not, not for one client, but that's their total practice is, is four or five million dollars. People like that are obviously just living day to day and might do something wacky in order to pay the bills this month. And, and I don't think that's healthy. So, uh, the access to advice, I just don't know of anyone who is working with small retail advisors who is not taking more clients. There's just way more enough advisors than, than we need. And uh, we have way more than we need. And, and furthermore, to the extent that there might even be some disruption, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that I, that, that might not be true. There will always be enough advisors. But furthermore, we have robos coming in, uh, offering uh, another suite of services that might not have existed five or six years ago. So we have that. Then the third thing then is this idea of choice. I always like to use the Monty Hall story with choice. <laughs> Just say you're playing a, a modified version of Let's Make a Deal. And uh, behind door number one, there's only two doors in this, this thing. Behind door number one is a new car. And behind door number two is a trip for two to Hawaii. It doesn't matter which door you choose. You're going to be pretty happy. Now, imagine we added door three. And behind door three is a donkey eating a bale of hay. Mm-hmm. Adding that door three, that's more choice. Now we have three choices. Is more choice better? And I think that's the problem is I think the people who talk about choice make it sound as though more choice is better. And who are we in a, in a, in a free democratic society to limit someone else's choice? Mm-hmm. But the choice uh, that, that, that they're being given, which is the embedded compensation, is conspicuously inferior to all the other choices. And I know you and I have had discussion about um, uh, Richard Thaler over at the University of Chicago and, and some of the books that he's written. And he's a pioneer of the concept called choice architecture. If you, I don't know if anybody ever wants to read a book called Nudge that he co-wrote with Cass Sunstein about oh, you uh, totally should. Uh, eight or nine years ago. And it shows very clearly that um, the, we can get people to make certain choices just by the order in which we give them their options. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's so deceptive because it sounds like, well, who could possibly be opposed to choice? But in fact, uh, this is not really about choice. This is about the alignment of interest in doing what's right and informed consent. And uh, a lot of the advisors who rally around choice do so ironically with some of their clients as their unwitting allies just because choice of and by itself sounds like such a desirable thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was just reading up a a study that looked at the impact of choice overload and uh, the participation rates in 401k plans, which are like defined contribution plans in Canada, but in the United States. And what they found was that that plans that only had two choices, which were moderate aggressive or moderate conservative. So you had two choices if you wanted to, you know, make a contribution to your retirement. Um, the plan participate was participation rate was 75%, but 
But for plans that had uh, choices that were much higher, in one instance, you know, 59 choices, the plan participation rates plummeted down to 60%. So from 75% down to 60%. And um, this was uh, tied into another study that sort of was a bit more uh, approachable. And that was, imagine you had a, uh, you know, at a Costco, uh, a jam tasting station, Mm -hmm. and there were 24 jams to choose from. And imagine that another Costco, they had a jam tasting station where there were only six jams to choose from. Well, the people who were presented with six different options were 10 times more likely to make a purchase uh, as opposed to the people who were given much more choice. And part of the reason for that was people were worried about making the wrong choice if they had too many. They didn't have time to do all the research. So there's this paralysis when you have too many options. And I'm talking in the extreme, you know, 24 different jams to taste from. Uh, if you have too many choices, people are worried that they pick the wrong choice, ultimately so they don't make a choice and they don't actually do anything. And inaction when it comes to personal finance, uh, I think is one of the big problems. So it's an interesting um, philosophical conversation. You want to give people as much choice as possible, but is that detrimental to their apps, uh, actual outcomes down the road. So very fascinating. I I wanted to add another thing about that, which is also fascinating, just about the morality and the logic of of the, uh, the, I call it the pro-choice camp. Um, These are typically, these are embedded commission mutual fund uh, proponents. And, and, and what you say is not necessarily what you believe. You say whatever you think will advance your cause. Yeah. So one of my, so that you find a way to rationalize it. And one of my favorite sayings is that people who rationalize tell rational lies. It's, it's plausible, <laughs> but it's not necessarily true. And, and, and so one way that I would look at it is uh, I ask these people who are big proponents of embedded compensation if they offer exchange traded funds to their clients. And they say, well, well, no, we don't. Huh. But you're the pro-choice guy. So you want choice, but you're limiting clients in your choice of investment vehicles. Hmm. You, you know, how do you square that? And, and of course, there's no answer for that. So there are things that they do that are, that they, they contradict themselves. But, uh, it's funny how there are very few people, even in the media, that will hold them accountable for their mm-hmm. own inconsistencies. Okay. So, uh, there's a lot of listeners who will, um, send me emails, um, and they'll say, Hey, listen, I'm looking for advice about getting into the industry because I want to be a financial advisor. What is your advice to someone who's thinking about entering the industry right now? First off, uh, I don't think you can enter the industry with just a license to sell mutual funds or securities or insurance. You you need to get designations above and beyond that. So the designation that I'm a big proponent of is the CFP, which is the Certified Financial Planner designation. Canada is a world leader. We have over 17,000 CFPs in Canada, far and away the most per capita in the world. Uh, so that would be the first thing is get a get a designation because it's not just about selling stuff. It's about looking at adding value, which means looking under the hood and holistically um, helping people solve their financial problems, and that might be debt consolidation, and that might be um, something to do which is more tax driven or corporate, and and, not and necessarily this has just changed, investing. right? Because like you know, if uh, ten, fifteen years ago, you'd say, well, yeah, all you need is your license to sell, and you're good to go. Technically, it's still all you need, but I think as the industry evolves and moves up market and becomes more of a profession, uh, anybody getting into the industry, if they want to do it for the totality of their career until the robos disintermediate them too, 
um, I, I think they need to prepare themselves for the long haul. And that means you need to have a skill set. So that's the first thing I would do. The second thing I would say is um, it's very difficult to start. There are very One of the things, one of the sort of dirty secrets of the industry is that it's getting old. Um, we're all getting old, uh, demographics being what they are. But there are a lot of there are not a lot of new advisors coming into the business and there haven't been any many for the past 10 or 15 years. And part, part of that is because it used to have a very low barrier to entry. And now, um, there's not only the academic and, and proficiency barrier to entry, which is that bar is being raised, but furthermore, it's difficult to be economical, especially in, in a land where embedded compensation might be disappearing to to pay the bills in the first few years mm-hmm. and so as a result of that i think a lot of people entering would probably do well to uh, find an advisor who is um, who could be a mentor who could where they could maybe work as an associate and if in time the advisor grows uh, he or she would be maybe hiving off um, a part of their practice or ultimately retiring um you know it's funny because in the professions you know, my dentist, smart guy, good guy, he's a client. And he um, he got started largely by buying other dental practices. Mm-hmm. And the banks are quite happy to help uh, someone who's 28 and fresh out of dentistry school. Here's a half million dollar loan to buy, you know, Joe's practice because Joe's 64 and wants to retire. And then you come in and then you have to get the dental chair and hire the hygienist and get the errors and emissions insurance and all the other things that are part and parcel with starting a dental practice. But you can do that and banks are quite happy to give them the money. Banks are not as willing to give that kind of money to financial advisors, mostly because much of the revenue that financial advisors make is upfront. And unless they can actually be assured that that revenue is recurring, which is to say fee-based, Banks won't do it. But if you can find an advisor who can say, look, I'll take you under my wing. I'll show you the ropes. We'll, we'll, we'll start working with clients. You can start working maybe with the smaller clients or the younger clients or some combination, some segment. Uh, you, you develop a, a knowledge base and a skill set. And then over time, you can say, well, how about if I sort of like buy a reverse takeover, um, buy these, 50 clients from you and I'll pay you it's you know it's whatever it is x number of dollars in assets so I'll pay you half of the recurring revenue for the next two years so I'll do the work as a as a a grunt and half the money will go to you Mr. Retiring or Selling Advisor but I'll do the other I'll do I'll get the other half the money I'll do all the work and after two years the clients will be my clients now and you will have been paid for having given them up and now you can start to transition into the industry and i think if you really are serious about making it starting from scratch unless you want to be an employee at a bank or something like that if you want to have your own clients you're probably going to have to do something like that to get into the industry in 2017 yeah and and let's 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 flesh this out for people sure. uh, because they may not have realized that you know as a client you can be sold to another advisor mm-hmm. And this happens all the time. And, you know, sometimes when advisors switch firms, they'll get a signing bonus to yeah. bring over their client base to the, uh, the, to this new shop. And it can be sizable. Um, you know, we've all heard stories in the industry of, of advisor teams getting, you know, a seven figure check to bring over their entire book of business. So you can bring it over yourself. Uh, and then after a couple of years, sell it to someone else. So you can actually get paid twice on your book. Um, and that, you know, this is the side of the industry a lot of people don't realize. And, and to me, you know, if that, uh, 
activity allows to is allowed to continue, that ultimately dries up the cost to the consumer because the consumer ultimately pays for that. Right. So there should there should there be restrictions on the buying and selling of people as clients? In my opinion, no. Uh, the so there are two main business models for people who work as as advisors that have their own clients. There's the so-called um, bank uh, model where you basically work for a, a sugar daddy large national institution <laughs> where you where you uh, receive a, a a lower payout but the institution pays your costs and you're getting clients that you otherwise might not get access to because of the logo on your business card and then there's the other uh, business model which is where you're working as a so-called independent full disclosure i'm an independent um, where you get a higher payout, but you pay your own costs. One of the things is that advisors under either business model, they don't have a pension plan. Uh, and if you think of them as being somewhat entrepreneurial, um, and this is certainly true, of, again, if you're a dentist, you're, you're an accountant, you can sell your practice when you retire as well. And one of the things that I say is as the business of giving financial advice morphs into more of a widely accepted profession with all the accoutrements that go with it, then one of the things I think that could come is that down the road, maybe financial advisors, including those in the brokerage channel, should be allowed to incorporate because doctors, dentists, and accountants can incorporate Mm -hmm. and should be able to sell their practice and should be allowed to continue to do so because they're sort of like a small business owner. If you have a a garbage recycling business. If you have a a business where where you you know wh- whatever you're whatever you do, at the end of the day, a good part of the equity that you build, a good part of your retirement plan, is is not just the money that you earn while you're working, but it's also the equity that you've built in your firm. You sell your firm and and off you go. I don't think being a financial advisor should be different. So from the client's perspective, let's say that your advisor is retiring, so they sell their book, and you get this new advisor who's bought this book, and you don't like them. For whatever reason, you just don't gel with them. Is there any obligation for you to stay with them? None. So you could leave if you wanted. Absolutely. And so do do you find, like just from talking to people in the industry, that um, there's a lot of turnover when a book is sold? How does that work? I think uh, the the primary determinant is whether your first loyalty is to the logo on the business card or the person whose name is on the business card. Mm -hmm. And if your loyalty is to the name, then uh, you will uh, follow the advisor to a different firm. And if your loyalty is to the logo, then you'll find a different advisor at the same firm. Uh, There's a certain amount of paperwork that's required for you, the client, either way. So it's not like there's a path of least resistance. There's going to be some extra work along the way. I think there's probably a little more paperwork to follow the advisor rather than switching uh, to a different advisor at the same firm, but there's paperwork involved either way. Uh, but it's absolutely your choice. And, and, I want to be clear, you should always be comfortable with your advisor. Most people, if they are comfortable with their advisor, will follow their advisor. But if you're uncomfortable for whatever reason, um, you, you will, you will stay or with a firm or go to a different firm altogether. So I switched firms one time. So I, I have done what you just described one time in my career. As I say, I've had six, six logos on my business card, but I've only switched firms once. The others have all been in corporate actions. But that one time was in 2005, and I had about, I think about 97% of my clients followed me, but there were two or three that, that chose not to. And I think it was maybe it was just because the hassle was a problem. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of them stayed at the other firm. They, they found a reason to go to a different firm, and this was now an excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
97 percent is pretty darn good if you ask around uh, oh yeah most yeah. people it's uh, most people are delighted if they can get 80 percent of their clients to follow them so um, 97 is, is pretty exemplary in my respectful opinion but I, I, I harbor no malice for the for the two or three clients that decided not to come with me they, they had their reasons and I respected them and and you know, we parted as, as friends. And, and again, from the client's perspective, so this is a different situation. So you talked about when you switch firms, but let's say that the advisor that you are working with as a client retires yeah. and they sell their book to another advisor. You should not feel any pressure to stay with that advisor knowing that they paid for you. So that is their business risk that they choose to take. And, and in fact, I should say, Preet, that part of, part of a good uh, agreement is that the more clients leave, the more that the incoming advisor can can get out of having to pay the the retiring advisor. So there are clauses like you know if you lose up to ten percent, you get paid one hundred percent. But if you lose anything beyond ten percent mm-hmm. of the clients, uh, as you because you're staying in the same firm, so the retention rate ought to be fairly high. Uh, then then it starts to come out of what uh, the buying advisor pays the selling advisor because maybe the selling advisor was. Uh, doing something else or was just a schmuck and, and, and the buying advisor was, was maybe buying a pig in the poke and, and the clients were just looking for an excuse. And now that, you know, there, are, there I think there are probably a lot of clients that are unhappy with some guy, but he's like 68 and he's going to retire anytime soon. Mm-hmm. So they don't, they, they've been working with him for 30 years and they don't, they don't, they, they're not entirely happy with him, but you know, they've had him over for dinner and they've, they've been, they've become quote unquote friends, even though they don't really like, the way the guy works professionally, right. so they're just waiting for an excuse. And so sometimes they don't they don't have the heart to fire him after thirty years, so they wait for him to retire. And as soon as he sells his practice to someone else, they they cross the street. Canadians are just too damn polite. They're too damn polite. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we talked a lot about embedded compensation uh, and some various uh, uh, various other issues. Let's talk about the best interest standard. Sure. So this is another topic uh, that regulators are mulling over right now, which yeah. is whether or not they should impose. Yeah. And uh, impose a best interest standard. And originally, it was a lot of people saying, well, why aren't everyone fiduciaries where you're required to act in the best interest of your clients? So there's a a, a legal, I guess, difference between fiduciary and a best interest standard, but ostensibly they are the same thing. So what is your take on this? What impact would the imposition of a best interest standard have on the financial advice industry? It's funny because I know you had Anita and Anda uh, on the podcast a month or so ago, and I know you talked a little bit about that, and she's far more qualified to speak to this than I am. But my view as a practitioner is that uh, advisors ought to act in their client's best interest, and uh, study after study shows that most clients think their advisors are legally mm-hmm. obligated to act in their best interest when in fact they are only all obligated to make recommendations that are suitable and it turns out the definition for suitable is anything that is not brazenly unsuitable which is to say <laughs> it can be you know pretty pretty far-fetched uh, I, I think a, a best interest standard would therefore serve consumers very well I, I would I've, I favored I always have it's I, I reference uh, that in the book I talk about that in the professional financial advisor for so it's the sort of thing where you know if you want to think if you want to think about where the industry is going, some of it has always been, even when I first wrote it, has always been a blue sky sort of, well, where would you like it to go? So quite a, quite apart from whether or not we are actually going to get there, where would you like it to go? What would it look like if it was all done? And in in my world, in my dream, it would be a situation where every advisor always, always did what was best for their clients. Let me give you an example of what I did myself 
to to demonstrate tangibly what I mean when I say that. Uh, I mentioned off the top of the program here that I've been a financial advisor for almost 24 years, but I've only been a portfolio manager for six. That's because about seven years ago, uh, when the best interest standard really started to pick up steam as a, as a discussion topic here in Canada, when, when that sort of um, hit the public consciousness, I immediately wanted to be held to that standard. I always felt that I that that's what I wanted to do. That's what I was trying to do. And that's what I always championed in the book. So, well, why wouldn't I do that? So I went to my employer and I said, so um, I understand that the, the test of being a fiduciary, of, of acting in your client's best interest, cannot really be established in advance. You really have to if there's a, a problem in a court, you actually have to go and look under the hood and see, so what was done? How, how suitable was it? How much reliance was there? How sophisticated was the client? And then based on those facts, which are case by case, you then can make a determination as to whether or not there was a fiduciary standard in place. So I, I wanted it to be in place unambiguously for all clients up front. I couldn't figure out how to do that. So I have a friend who's a consumer advocate who said that one of the things that's going on in the U.S. is advisors are signing a so-called fiduciary pledge, which is just two or three or four sentences long. Mm-hmm. I, John DeGuy, hereby pledge to work in your best interest at all times. Sign John DeGuy. Give it to the client. There it is. If there's a problem, show it to the judge. Well, I wanted to do that. And I spoke <laughs> to uh, I spoke to some people who are in the know. Gloria Stromberg, who's a former commissioner of the OSC. Ed Waitzer, who's a former chair of the OSC and a partner at a downtown law firm here. They thought it was a good idea, but they, they were doubtful as to whether or not I can get it to fly. And sure enough, I went to my employer and they said, no, nope, we don't want we don't want the liability, so we're not going to do that. So here's a guy who wants to be a fiduciary and can't even opt in voluntarily. Mm-hmm. So what I ended up doing, and this is a roundabout way of saying, so I'm a portfolio manager because one of the things that's established in case law is that portfolio managers, PMs, are fiduciaries because they have discretion. So I went to my client and said, I want you to to make me a fiduciary so that I can be held to a higher standard. I can't do that because my employer won't let me. And for what it's worth, I even spoke to other firms and they wouldn't let me either. So it's not just one firm. All the firms had the same problem. But, but here's the good news. We can do an end around. If, if you give me discretion so that I can work for you as a PM, presto changeo, I'm a fiduciary. Mm-hmm. So let's do that. And so uh, there were, there are a number of reasons why a person might wish to be a portfolio manager. And again, there's over a hundred thousand advisors in Canada, too many, but there's only about three thousand of them that are portfolio managers. So those are the only advisors in Canada that are currently unambiguous fiduciaries. And I wanted to be one of those. So that's what I did. And has there been any detrimental impact to the relationship with your clients? I would assume it's only been positive. Uh, you would be wrong. Uh, there are three or four clients who um, I, I pushed really hard. And again, it's funny how things change and you don't know what to expect. So I, this was, I was in earnest. I sincerely wanted to do what was right for my clients. I said, so I would go to them. Look, we can we can do things that are differently. I can I can save you a twenty dollars trading charge if you give me discretion, and I can get my firm to pay your 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 trustee fees if you give me discretion. Plus, you get better reporting. Yes, yeah. I'm a fiduciary. There's a whole yeah. bunch of stuff. <laughs> you should change. You should change. You should change. I had two or three clients leave because they were unhappy with me encouraging them to give them discretion. I was doing it for their benefit. Right. And but because I was but because I was coming across as being pushy right for them right <laughs> they that so it's like it's it's funny how life is perverse and you don't really know what to I anyway mean, it's it's been it's been 97 <laughs> or 98 percent positive but i it would be disingenuous to to say that it's been all good because there have been a few pockets where 
things have happened unexpectedly. And I, and I totally understand how that could happen, yeah. of course. But it's just kind of funny to think that you go up to someone and say, hey, listen, I want to do what's in your best interest. I don't like the sound <laughs> of that. That No, forget it. <laughs> uh, I don't know. But punishing the people for trying to do the right thing is, is just really weird. But uh, there it is. But that's that's human nature, and I, and again, I can totally understand. You know, they might say, "Well, so can I. Like, this I, is I, different, right?" I, I, I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated. Uh, I feel misunderstood. But that's the story of my life. But uh, <laughs> I, but but I don't begrudge them if that's their choice. It's their choice. So, as as a policy wonk, a self professed policy yes. wonk, <laughs> how active are you in trying to change the landscape and going to the powers that be? So, not just talking to the industry and the industry rags, right. but do you? Do you have contact with Ottawa? And yeah, so I, I tried to get a meeting with Minister Morneau when I was in Ottawa a month ago about making uh, financial planning tax deductible, and I've been working with the Financial Planning Standards Council, and they support the initiative, but they've got other fish to fry right now. And and by the way, um, the regulation of, of financial planning in all the professions are provincial and jurisdiction, so what you really need to do is to get the provinces to regulate financial planning first, and then you get Ottawa to make financial planning tax deductible, but un- until it's regulated, I don't think there'll be uh, you'll you'll see a, a bit of a, uh, a a legislative public policy entrenchment of of the terms and conditions associated with it. And you can understand why Ottawa would be reticent to move because they don't want any person who's not qualified to do certain things holding out as doing them because that that actually undermines the public confidence because now people are saying i thought i was getting x what i got was y mm-hmm. and they only offered x so they can get a tax deduction so they can make themselves look better but in fact i'm not really getting what i thought i was getting and and then it all falls down like a house of cards so you really do need to be careful to make sure that you can build a strong base and then build up from there but yes i'm talking to ottawa at least i'm trying to i'm writing letters to the minister i've uh, we've had things here in ontario where there was a, a so-called expert committee that was struck with regard to taking a more tailored approach to uh, financial advice in general and financial planning in particular. I've written submissions. I've sat in on on focus groups, uh, and and again, I'm, I'm, I've spoken with my MPP a couple of times. And so there are things that that are being done, and I think that's one of the things that uh, your your listeners might be hopefully heartened to hear is that there are some people out there who are trying to move the ball forward. I don't just write books. I actually try to substantively roll up my sleeves and change things. And writing books and writing articles is is all fine and well. But at the end of the day, you have to go to the people who have the power to make the decisions to actually change the way things are done. So you, you referenced Gloria Stromberg a couple of times. Yeah. And um, we I, I think I've chatted about uh, her report uh, with yeah. Dan Hallett and uh, Anita Anand. Um, she released this report in 1995, which is referred to as the Stromberg Report. Yeah. And it talks about a lot of things, makes a lot of recommendations that we are still debating today, such right. as the best interest standard and the banding of yeah, embedded commissions. So it takes an incredible amount of time to get uh, any kind of forward momentum when it comes to regulatory change in Canada. So what is ultimately going to change the landscape? Is it going to be a push from the regulators or is it going to be a change in what consumers demand? Is it a generational shift? Like we have to wait for the opinion, old legacy neither. to age out? So I, so I think uh, we will be shamed internationally. So we will be forced to act because we are international laggards. So other countries like the UK and Australia have already banned embedded compensation Countries like uh, the Netherlands did it voluntarily. They didn't even have a legislative thing. The industry just decided voluntarily to, to do it. 
and I believe there are many, many other jurisdictions that are talking about it right now. So in terms of what will change, to me, the biggest change that has to come is getting rid of embedded compensation. I've, I've sort of said that a couple of times and I've insinuated as much a couple of additional times. I, I think that will only then will the culture change and only then will we really be able to move forward to a truly professional way of doing things. And if, if what you want is a professional arrangement where the people are the advisors are giving advice based on this is what's best. And it's not like if I recommend A over B, I'm going to be paid 10 or 20% more. It's like, I'm going to get paid the same either, either way. I'm going to recommend what I think works. And, and until you can break that link between the products and the advice, uh, we're not going to have a, a pure system. So I think that's what has to change more than anything else. Um, I think it will change, but not because of, folks like us who are trying to do it, but rather because, uh, I mean, there are small contributors, maybe two or 3% of the change will be because of consumer advocates and consumers and the media and advisors. But um, 90% of the uh, the change will come, I think, because the regulators will feel heat from other jurisdictions and they will feel compelled to keep up. So if you were to uh, estimate a probability that a uh, a ban on embedded commissions were to occur in the next five years, what number would you assign that? Ninety five percent. So you think it's coming? I do. Uh, I think it's uh, it's. Of course, I've been wrong before, so I've been wrong on timeline. The problem is five years is a fair timeline, and and I think uh, I would have said fifty uh, percent in three years, and then sort of like seventy five percent in four, and ninety five and five. I'm quite certain it's going to happen, and I'm quite certain it'll be in five years or less. I I I think um, the Canadian Securities Administrator's final report on the subject will come out. Somewhere around the new year, maybe December, maybe January, February, I don't know, but somewhere around the new year. And I think certainly the paper, and I just finished reading it because I just made my submission recently uh, about it, uh, they, they talk openly about a three-year phase-in. So if this were to sort of, the report is released, say, on December December of 2017, and there's a three-year phase-in, then that, my math puts it at December of 2020, when embedded con- commissions can be eliminated, but that's probably a best case scenario. But you've you've made it five years, and that's only three and a half years away. So I think uh, uh, if five years is until the end of twenty twenty two, I yeah ninety five percent is my number. Uh, but the mechanics behind that, um, because really there's uh, as far as you know, uh, maybe one or two provincial regulators who are on on the track of saying, yes, we're willing to go forward with this. But then this is all thrown into doubt with this new cooperative capital markets regulator, um, which doesn't look to have the same sort of support behind it. So, uh, you know, I personally see in the next 18 months, 24 months, that whatever momentum that has been gaining around banning the embedded commissions might be gone. I don't know what your take is on that. Well, they're obviously separate things. Mm -hmm. So even if the cooperative capital markets regulator doesn't gain consensus, that doesn't mean that a ban on embedded commissions can't gain consensus. So just because we don't have a national regulator doesn't mean that we can't agree amongst ourselves. So we can we can agree on what to do even if we can't agree on who does it. Right. But even if the CCMR comes into uh, being, which it probably will, but not by the, the right. first deadline that they sort right. of said, if it comes into being, then that kind of takes the, the, the wind out of the sails because really it's been the OIC is going to say, yeah, we're going to go forward with this. Right. 
But if the CCMR comes through, then the other partners in the CCMR are not on board with that. You got to be careful here. So once again, for the people listening, so the OSD is the Ontario Securities Commission, yeah. the CS, yeah. <laughs> CCMR Capital Canadian Capital Market Regulator. So yes, but yes, uh, there's there are a lot of moving parts, and and it's political. And certainly, the one thing that I've learned, it's funny because as a political person, as a public policy person, you'd think I would know better, but I always. When when I was a younger man, I was more involved in part in party politics and in politics in general, and it was all more sort of um, big picture. But when you actually have to get down into the trenches and actually get things done, uh, there's a lot more horse trading that goes on, and especially that's especially true. Uh, in Canada. In fact, I would actually take an exception to what Anita said on the podcast about a month or so ago, because she said uh, that the division of powers was was because of um, Section 91 being um, trade and commerce, whereas mm-hmm. Section 92 was uh, property and civil rights. But as an old political guy, <laughs> I would actually say that Section 91 has a residual clause for Canada has the right to make laws for the peace order and good government. So anything that is not expressly <laughs> referenced in the in the in the Constitution yeah. should go to Ottawa. So the, the classic example is aviation. There were no planes in 1867 at the time of Confederation. So when the time came to decide who would get the get the jurisdiction, it went to Ottawa. So the same sort of thing. If there's no express reference to securities law in the Constitution Act of 1867 using the same logic, I think it should go to Ottawa. So Anita and I agree as to who ought to have the power, but we just disagree as to why. So just she's for a, the record. She's a lawyer, so. <laughs> for a record, you're arguing with a professor of I law. I know, I know. Okay. <laughs> yep, yep, she's a professor of law, and, and but it's a Well, no one ever thing. said you didn't have balls, John. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, okay, so my last thing I want to uh, ask you is for all the listeners out there who want to know when they're looking for financial advice. Yeah. What should they be looking for? And I'll, I'll preface this by saying this is a, a, a discussion I've had with Dan Hallett a number of times. What is the process by which you can you can use to identify that you have a good advisor or, or you're finding the right financial advisor for you? And it, it I will say that this is a lot tougher than people realize. It so is. what's your take? So I put about I finally in the fourth edition finally figured out that that's that that that's an important question if you're trying to help ordinary consumers make a decision about who they're working with and who they should work with. So I finally, I think I have put like 22 questions in the last or second last chapter of the book to actually help people ferret through the the various ins and outs of what they should be looking for. So um, the usual questions of how long have you been in the business? Tell me about your firm, your experience, your specialization, your typical client. Typical client to me is an important question in terms of you don't want to be too far outside of the bandwidth. So an example that I'll say is 50% in either direction. So if you're... Let's say you're a. Let's say you've got a hundred thousand dollars to invest. Realistically, you want a, a, an advisor who works with a lot of clients like you. So, you know, if the client has a lot of clients that are below fifty, or a lot of clients that are over two hundred thousand, fifty percent in either direction, um, um, maybe it's not a good fit. So, you want. I think ideally, you'd want to have an advisor who works with clients that are a lot like you in terms of stage of life, in terms of financial problems. Uh, so that they're not doing, they're not solving your problems for the first time. That they've actually seen this before, they know what to do, and they know what questions to ask, so they can give you good advice as you go through things. Um, you'd hopefully want to have someone with a designation. And again, uh, there are many good designations. CFA is a good designation, TEP and, and CLU and whatever. But my favorite designation is CFP. Uh, and so that would be the one designation. If you could look for only one, that would be the one that I would look for. Um, 
I don't worry much as much about the amount of money you have under management. I do not. Oh, please do not ask your advisor about how did you do last year? Um, <laughs> first off, every year is different. So if you ask him after a good year, he'll say fine or she'll say fine. And if you say, if you ask him after it was a crappy year, they'll say, well, you know, we lost money. But, but it's very difficult to, to audit what they say. And the other thing is that one year's data is not statistically significant. You need many, many years of data to actually make an informed decision about whether or not he or she's helping you. But what if you ask them, you know, how did you do last year? And they say, that's a dumb question. Isn't that a good thing? Yep. Uh, uh, <laughs> so it's you a would very ask them that thing. question. So, so if, if you, yeah, if you want to ask, in fact, actually two or three of my questions are, this is really just a, a bullshit question that you're putting there <laughs> to see if they'll take the bait and try to answer it as if it's a serious question. So you do need to, to do that. The problem is it's very difficult for advisors when there's a prospective client um, coming along. There, there are ads all, all, all around say there's no such thing as a bad question. You can't say there's no such thing as a bad question. And then the person asks you the question. You say, well, that's Except a stupid question. that one. That, right. is, that is the so, single so dumbest it's, question it's you can difficult. ask me. You know, advisors are in a bit of a tough spot <laughs> because on the one hand, they want to encourage questions. They want to but, – but consumers are, are, are also in a tough spot because – they would ask questions and they would do a, they would do more due diligence if they just knew how to go about doing it. And I think, um, there, there's a, there's a real challenge. So I try to give you a few ideas there. I hope, I hope they're helpful. Okay. And another topic that a lot of people have questions about is, you know, the active versus passive debate. And I think way back in the second edition of your book, you had this great matrix, which yeah. sort of said, listen, there's, um, sort of two uh, uh, spectrums you want to look at. One is, you know, are you using advice or you want to do it yourself? And active versus passive. And a lot of people kind of assumed that, you know, do-it-yourself and passive was sort of like one box. And if you used an advisor, it was always going to be active. But that's that's really morphed since then. And more there are a lot of advisors who are offering passive investment solutions and maybe focusing on the financial planning. And there's a lot of advisors who offer active as well. So so what's your what's your style? So I, I am I'm, I'm mostly what you would call passive, but what I would say that more important than active and passive, which is a bit of a tired debate, is just high cost and low cost. So mm-hmm. I, I, I talk more about cost. And so one of the questions that I had as actually one of the very best questions that you should ask is, how important is cost? Mm-hmm. And the evidence is resounding. Cost is critically important. And if an advisor changes the subject and says, oh, cost doesn't matter. What matters is your return. So here's the thing. Cost is what you pay. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. And if you ask them a question about price and they give you an answer about value, they're dodging. So, you know, what does this product cost? And if the guy says, well, you know, the market did 4% last year and this product did 4.8, that those might both be uh, factual statements but they didn't answer the question that you asked. And so what you need to remember is that in the long run, the evidence is very clear. The expected return of anything is the of any given asset class or any given investment is the return of the benchmark minus the cost of the product that, that you use to get the access. So if a product costs 1% less, all else being equal over the course of a lifetime, your return should be about 1% more. It might be more or less in one year or two years or five years or whatever, but that 1% difference in cost over the course of a lifetime will even out. The performance will even out, but the difference in cost will stay for sure. And so performance is variable, but cost is permanent. And so the the thing that you need to, to think about all the time is I come down on, on in favor of low cost, and that's somewhat passive, but I also do a lot of 
um, what I'm going to call factor-based investing. And some people think that factor is active and some people are passive. And I don't really care what you want to call it. What I just say, cost matters. And if you want to pay more for a certain strategy, okay, but make sure you know how much more you're paying and make sure you understand what you're hopefully going to be getting. And hopefully the value proposition um, will, will bear itself out. I gave a presentation in Ottawa about a month ago at a, at a national conference for financial planners. And I used uh, the example of uh, three cars. Which which car represents the best value? And I and I showed them like a, a Hyundai Santa Fe and a and a Tesla three and a BMW five whiz bang thing. And one cost twenty five thousand, one cost thirty five thousand, one cost one hundred twenty five thousand. Which one represents the best value? And these people, these other financial planners in the room, all chose, with one exception, they all chose the the uh, the Santa Fe or the or the Tesla. Only one person chose a hundred twenty five thousand dollar BMW. But the thing is, if you change that thousands of dollars into uh, basis points, and you have two three products, one that costs twenty five basis points, which is a traditional passive, one which costs thirty five basis points, which is a factor based product. Still cheap, but but not as cheap. And one which costs 125 basis points, which is, say, an F-class active product. Now we start talking about value. And you realize very quickly, you're paying... Uh, you're paying a premium price and you're not necessarily getting a premium product because investments, just like cars, investments are appreciating assets, but the impact of the cost is like a car which depreciates over time. So that product cost will eat away at your long-term return and leave you with less terminal wealth. And any advisor that will try to deflect that and try to change that sub- try to change the subject and deny that fact, which has been proven five ways till Friday, that's not a good advisor. Your whiskey glass is empty. Do you want any more? Yeah, sure. Okay, what would you like next? So uh, for the people that are listening, we had a really amazing um, custom blend, which no one actually knows the contents of. It's custom bottled for uh, the Kensington Wine Market in Calgary. So that's my personal favorite right now. And then uh, you just had a Lagavulin 16. So what are you thinking? You want uh, smoke or no smoke? You know as well as I do that I don't know what I'm talking about with Splash, so I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Please. Okay, so I'll, I'll pour that in a second, and so I'm going to ask you a question. You're going to talk while I, I grab the whiskey. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is, again, speaking to the value that an advisor brings to the table, and we've talked about this offline many times, constructive behavior modification. Yeah. So why don't you start talking about what that means and what people should look for in that relationship? Constructive behavior modification is a phrase that I actually started using, I think, in the first or second edition of the book as well. So there, there's a lot of evidence that has come out. It's, it's sort of become prominent in the past generation that behavioral finance is a very big deal. So there is a guy by the name of Daniel Kahneman who, together with his research partner, Amos Tversky, did a lot of groundbreaking research with regard to the impact of behavioral quirks. Uh, they, they call it heuristics, where you take shortcuts because this usually works and so I'm going to do whatever usually works because going back to caveman times, that decision usually was right 95% of the time. The problem is, of course, that it's not so great when you're dealing with money and sometimes the thing that usually works doesn't work. And one of the reasons, a classic example is that every advisor says buy low, sell high, but there's so much research that shows that most people, if left to their own advice, even if they're working with an advisor, 
tend to buy relatively high and sell relatively low. And so to the extent that an advisor can play a role in helping people to A, acknowledge that they have these quirks, and we all have them to some to some extent, uh, and then uh, after you've acknowledged that you have them, you hopefully will do something to to moderate the more harmful and self-destructive elements of what it is that you are doing. So a good advisor can help you to stay the course in terms of maintaining a strategic asset mix, topping up your RRSP and making regular contributions, for that matter, your TFSA and your RESP and that sort of thing as well, um, and and just keep you on a more even keel and to keep things in perspective. It's like, oh, well, this has gone way up and, and we can sell this and take some profits. And well, yes, you can. But if you do, um, there's going to be a $10,000 capital gain that you'll be triggering. How do you feel about that? And maybe they feel fine and maybe they don't, but you know, maybe there's a concentration risk and maybe you should sell. But a, a classic example, again, is... 12 or 13 years ago, a lot of people held a lot of Nortel and they didn't want to sell because they didn't want to pay the tax. Well, they watched it go all the way down. And the good news is they didn't have to pay the tax. The bad news is they lost all their money. Uh, and, and so you know, being able to help people disassociate from the emotional side of decision making and look at it with a, a cold, rational set of eyes to say, what is it that we're really trying to do here? And let's do that. And that's what a good advisor can help you to do. And a lot of advisors are all too willing to be facilitators and especially those that are paid by transaction because if you want to trade uh the a commission-based advisor will make money when you buy and when you sell and it's funny because one of the old sayings is that uh, a fee-based advice is likely the best because it's the only it's the only business model that pays the advisor for doing nothing when nothing is the right thing to do because the other saying that I like got a lot of sayings. The other saying is that a portfolio is like a bar of soap. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. Yeah. And so to the extent that you can actually keep clients hands off their own portfolios, you will likely uh, help them in ways that they couldn't possibly imagine initially because what they, they think they're helping themselves. But in fact, a lot of the time advisors getting in and mucking around are actually doing more harm than good clients getting in and mucking around and advisors too. A lot of activity actually does more harm than good. And, and if you can minimize activity and just tweak things on the margin, you're probably doing much better. You know, um, an analogy, since we're talking about, uh, finance and bars of soap and don't touch your portfolio and all that stuff with whiskey, mm-hmm. since we're drinking whiskey, uh, there's this concept known as the angel share. Uh, which is when a whiskey is maturing in the barrel. There's an exchange that occurs between the Evaporates. outside atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, and so this exchange also leads to the evaporation of the spirit that is in the barrel. And so 2% of the volume of the whiskey that's aging loses, mm-hmm. is lost to the angels, as they say every year. So they call it the angel share. And what's really interesting is, uh, you know, if you go on a tour of a distillery, um, they will show you the impact of the angel share over time. So they'll take this, you know, this, this sample bottle and they'll show you how much is lost every single year and is the exact same impact of MER on the, uh, uh, potential value that you would have had. So a 2% cost, when you phrase it in, in terms of percent sounds innocuous, but after 25 years, it could be around, you know, 40%. Of your of terminal the, wealth. Of the value in that barrel and, is gone. And, and, and right? if you're starting, if you're starting with two hundred thousand dollars, and forty years later it's going to grow at pick a number, uh, say say five percent, and instead of uh, at uh, instead of at uh, three or 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 at seven percent, five percent instead of seven, or or three percent instead of five, that difference in, in the, the rate of growth is 
astronomical. Like yeah. we're, 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 we're definitely talking six digits, depending on how, you know, how long you invest and how much you start with and how much you put in along the way. But it's not a stretch to say that uh, um, even just your middle-class listeners could could easily have a difference in their terminal wealth of a quarter of a million dollars. Oh, yeah, easy. If they can just manage their costs better. Yeah, and... Um, so this behavior modification, so we talked about, you know, the MER of 2% as yep. an example, but there's this concept of the behavioral drag, yep. which can be either, uh, you know, uh, an individual do-it-yourself investor, or it could be experienced by an investor using a financial advisor, yep. because financial advisors, the research is very clear, are also susceptible yep. to a behavioral drag. And I'm starting to chew my words now, because I am now <laughs> the getting completely close. half of the way. I didn't eat it all today. <laughs> 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 and uh, so, so, anyways, so this behavioral drag uh, could be worth, in some cases, one percent a year, two uh, percent. Uh, one study, the Barbara Nodine study, back in two thousand and one, I think, in the Journal of Finance, found that the most active traders had a drag of about ten percent annualized because they were just much more active in their portfolio. So. How do you find an advisor that doesn't have a behavioral drag, or how do? What do you look for in terms yeah. of this constructive behavior modification? One of the questions that I tell people to ask is, so how often do you trade, and and what's your trading uh, methodology? Why? How? Um, so I can tell you that in my own practice, I I rebalance portfolios once or twice a year, most years, and it's typically going to be five to ten, five to fifteen percent of the portfolio will be sold the things that have gone up or that have done relatively well will be sold on the margin to buy those other asset classes that have either gone up less or have gone down. Uh, and But the other 90% of the portfolio remains untouched. And, and so it's not exactly buy and hold, but it's certainly not active trading either. It's buy and hold and then tweak to, to reset things. So, to my mind, that's that's the best um, sort of trade-off between doing nothing and doing too much because most people do too much. So the questions that you should ask uh, your advisor or your prospective advisor is: So how often do you trade? What's your trade discipline? What would cause you to trade? You know, what's your rationale? And 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 does, does it's the same thing for a taxable account as a non-taxable account and those sorts of things to sort of understand what he or she is doing. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer. I'm saying every answer has some merit and is plausible as long as you understand that the evidence is pretty clear. This is the Terrence Odeen study. I think it was called Boys Will Be Boys, if I recall. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, evidence that... Um, just as cost correlates uh, negatively to performance, so does trading. So people who lower their costs do better, and people who trade more do worse, and people who trade less do better as well. So, so this goes back to your clear. to your analogy of you know the bar of soap, yeah. which I, I use that adage yeah. all the time. Yeah. The more you touch it, the smaller it gets. Okay, so I think I've said this is my last topic like <laughs> three times over the last half hour, but clearly we're just uh, enjoying it too much. Yeah, and, and as I said, uh, I started this podcast without a plan. And then added alcohol. So that's never a good mix. So let me end off by asking you, hey, how do you like this third whiskey? It's very that you're good. On yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. The first one is still my favorite, but that's it's very good. Okay, excellent. So this one is a uh, Brook Laddie, the classic Laddie. And I'll tell you that this one has uh, a, a slightly higher alcohol content too. Yeah. I think it is about 50% out of the bottle, uh, where normally you'd say 
See, 40, 40 or 43%, yeah. something like that. So anyway, so we'll continue to drink our whiskey, um, but everyone gets a commercial at the end of the podcast. So you've got, you know, a minute, two minutes. Tell people where they can find you, where they can find your book, if they, you know, what your sure. typical client looks like, if Great. they like sure. what you have to say. Okay. So I... I've been in the business, as, as I said, for uh, 24 years. I, my office is located at, at Young and Wellington, right in downtown Toronto. I'm a portfolio manager. Uh, the first thing that I would say is no matter where you are in Canada, you can get my book, which is The Professional Financial Advisor, or advisor with an O, for... <laughs> Uh, it's available through Insomniac Press, uh, and it, it covers off pretty much everything that we discussed in the podcast today. Uh, if anybody wants to contact me uh, personally, uh, I will once again say there are no dumb questions, so <laughs> feel free to call me. Um, uh, my I I don't remember my toll free number, so I can give you my my local number. My local number is four one six two one six. 6588. My toll-free number changed my switch firms and I never bothered remembering it. Um, you can send me an email. Cost matter, John. I know. Jesus. My you, you can uh my my email address is john.degui. That's D-E-G-O-E-Y at I-A-G-T-O dot C A. That's Industrial Alliance Group Toronto dot C A. And uh my Website is johndegui.com, so www.johndegui.com. Once again, D-E-G-O-E-Y.com. My Twitter handle, if you want to follow me on Twitter, is at johndegui underscore I-A-S, which is Industrial Alliance Securities. Thanks. All right. Isn't Twitter now just for lunatics? Yeah, I mean, it is actually. Yeah. So, so yeah, Facebook is for your mom, <laughs> and and uh, Twitter is for for people who like to follow lunatics that that are raving people on at Pennsylvania Avenue and so forth. But uh, yes, it's really deteriorated. But you know what? I, I still log in every now and then. I tweet every now and then. So maybe it'll make a comeback. I have no idea. Anyways, John, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your insights and expertise. Oh, I should say, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I had to ask you for your recommendations for for burgers, and yes. are you a burger guy? I'm not all? a burger guy because I I'm trying to lose weight. Okay, and, then and forget it. Then your your opinion does not count because you have to be a burger aficionado. Well, you're the you're the guy that uh, told me about the burgers priest, so I I, uh, I have been there with you, and I think I've been there once or twice since. And so, to the extent that I would go to anywhere, that would be where I would go. Okay, so. All right. So really no opinion. Really no opinion. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for being a guest on the show uh, and sharing your insights and expertise. Thanks. And to the listeners, don't forget to leave a rating and, uh, if you like, a comment as well on iTunes. It helps me to get top-notch guests on the podcast like John. And that is it for this week. We will see you next time. <laughs>